Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Well, today we're beginning a new series of talks where we're looking at two subjects between now and Easter. Um, we come into church this morning and Christmas is no more. The lights have gone, the greenery is gone, the candles have gone, and uh, we're now beginning the move up towards Easter. It's official. Uh, Tesco's are already stocking uh, Easter eggs. Uh, we bought hot cross buns on Boxing Day, I think. Um, so we're moving towards Easter. And we're going to look at two subjects. First, we're going to look at worship. What does it mean for us to gather together and worship God? How do we worship as individual people? And then we're going to look at the whole subject, which is included in worship, but stands alone by itself. What happens when we pray? Who are we praying to? How should we pray? What sort of prayer is acceptable to God? What forms of prayer are best, perhaps for us, given our personality and given our individual temperaments? But we begin today looking at the whole subject of worship. I wonder if, like me, you saw the research that came out this week um, that discovered that apparently if you don't believe in God, you are more likely to have a cat. I mean, this is life-changing stuff. Uh, but if you do not believe in God, apparently, according to the University of Oklahoma, you are more likely to have a cat. 
The researchers found this. Cats require daily offerings. They always seem to be judging you, and they rarely reciprocate acts of devotion. And the reality is that for lots of people, cats can take on the sort of characteristics of a god. Let's divide the congregation immediately. Um, if you're a dog person, put your hand up. If you're a cat person, put your hand up. Yeah, interesting, interesting. You see, there are far more dog people who are like me and Jesus, and the, the less of you who are more cat people. And we have a cat, actually, but for the last four years we have a cat. He is the most dog-like cat I have ever experienced. When he was a kitten, you could throw a ball and he would go after it, fetch it and bring it back. And if you called his name, he, he comes to you and he's now proved himself to be an absolutely useless mouse catcher. We have an infestation of mice in our house and our cat just sits there and watches them. In fact, he brings some of them in. Um, tip, if you want to get rid of mice, don't have a cat. Actually, cats make the problem worse. But the reality is that we fall into dogs and cats people. But for people who are into cats, often, and this research has found, they often assign characteristics of a god to a cat. It was an atheist and journalist, Christopher Hitchens, who died a couple of years ago. He said this, that if you feed a dog, they think you are God, but if you do the same to cats, they draw the conclusion they are gods. <laughs> now that sort of hints at the observation that G.K. Chesterton made many years ago, that as human beings, if we don't worship God, it's not that we will worship nothing, but actually we will worship anything. And therefore, we see around us a whole society and a whole culture where people do worship different things. People worship their jobs. People worship their careers. The two might not be the same thing. People worship their family, or perhaps not. They worship perhaps their acad academic achievement. They worship perhaps money. Uh, some of us perhaps even worship our football team when they're playing well. But what do we do when we gather to worship God? What do we do corporately and individually in response to who God is. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. And when we start to talk about worship in church, it often evokes and elicits quite strong reactions because people feel, quite rightly, passionate and strongly about worship. And what is often lost in those conversations is that we get lost in debates and conversations about the form of worship. We get lost in conversations about whether people prefer traditional hymns or modern worship songs. We get lost in uh, debates about whether people prefer quiet, liturgical, uh, set forms of worship like our nine o'clock communion or sort of more spontaneous, contemporary, loud events like our 11 o'clock and our seven o'clock service. Now, the reality is that most of us this morning are here at 11 o'clock because we have chosen to be here. You may have been told that you were coming, but most of us have come here probably because this is the form of worship that we find helpful. For some of us, that might not be the case. For some of you, you actually used to go to the 11 9 o'clock service because that is the form of worship that actually suits you more. It helps you connect with God more. You're here because of your kids. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have kids. For some of you, you might come to the 7 o'clock because you prefer a longer time of sung worship and more spontaneous worship. 
But that really isn't the essence of what we're talking about over the next few weeks. Because worship is not about what we prefer. Worship is not about what we like. Worship is not about what suits our personality, although those things are important and those things are true. And we'll look at what are called different spiritual pathways, the different ways in which different people find it more or less helpful, depending on their personality, to connect with God through different means. But that's not what we're talking about. Here are two different definitions of worship from quite different backgrounds and traditions. Pope Francis defines worship as this. He said, worship means concentrating on what is essential, ridding ourselves of useless things and addictions that anesthetize the heart and confound the mind. That's one of the things that happens, hopefully, as we gather together on a Sunday. We're getting rid of stuff that doesn't actually matter, that might occupy a lot of our thinking and feeling during the week, but actually doesn't matter in the long term. Tim Keller, who until recently was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, gave another definition that wasn't that far removed, ironically, from the Pope's. He said this, worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone that engages your entire being. Hence why people worship their job, their career, their football team, their family, or even money. And we see both these aspects of worship reflected in the encounter between God and Moses that was read for us a few moments ago from Exodus chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible or a smartphone or a tablet with a a Bible app on it, if you want to turn back to Exodus chapter 3, we're going to look very quickly through these first 12 verses and see what we can learn about worship from how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And I wonder whether you notice right in the last verse how pivotal and how important worship is. God reveals himself to Moses in uh, the most badly named Bible episode ever, Moses and the burning bush. The whole point, as I've said before about the bush, is that it was not burning. That's what intrigued Moses. But it's on fire. And when Moses receives this commission from God to go and get the people of Israel out of Egypt, he says to God, who am I that they should, you know, be sent? How are they going to believe that it's you that sent me, etc.? God says in verse 12 of Exodus chapter 3, this will be the sign to you that it's I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Do you want to know why I'm sending you? Do you want to know how you're going to verify that it's me who's sending you? Do you want to know what the ultimate test will be? The ultimate revelation will be, it will be that you will worship me on this mountain. So when Moses goes to Pharaoh and seven times in the first ten chapters of Exodus, he doesn't say to Pharaoh, let my people go, God says, because you're oppressing them. He doesn't say, let my people go so that they might be freed from slavery. He doesn't say, let my people go because you're a mean, nasty Egyptian. He says, let my people go, God says, so that they might worship me. 
so that they might worship me. It was always God's intention to create a worshiping community. We are made to worship as human beings. We are intended, we are created to worship God. And if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. To paraphrase the words of G.K. Chesterton and Tim Keller. We are made as human beings to worship. The question is, what are you worshipping? And if we're Christians, how does our worship of God inform and affect how we live for and with God? And what do we think happens when we worship God? What do we think is going on individually and corporately when we deliberately decide to set aside time to listen to God, to encounter God, to hear from him and to share with him what is on our hearts? God's purpose right from the start was to call to himself a worshipping community. We call it the church. But our primary job as human beings is to worship. When we get to heaven... We will work, but we will also worship. That will be what we will do. We will worship. So what happens when God reveals himself to Moses? Well, in the first three verses, worship that changes the ordinary. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock into the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. For Moses, it was an ordinary day. If the Bible is correct and being literal, saying he'd been there for 40 years in Midian, Literally, it is day 14,601 for Moses. And Moses thought that day was going to be the same as the previous 14,600. He would get up. He would get dressed. He would have his breakfast. He would go and take the sheep, and they would find somewhere to feed, and he would be there with the sheep for the day. He'd bring the sheep home. He'd have supper. He'd get undressed, and he would go to sleep. Day after day after day after day. This was an ordinary day. Day 14,601. He is in what is referred to in the New International Version as the far side of the wilderness. The King James Version is more literal, more evocative, and it describes it as the backside of the desert. That's where Moses is. He's in nowhere land. He's in just, it's, it's a barren, barren, barrenness. The barrenness of the barren. That's where, the desert of the desert. He's in the backside of the desert. And he's been there for 40 years. And he's been there for 40 years because he's on the run. If you remember earlier in his life, he'd seen a, a, an Egyptian killing uh, an Israelite or mistreating an Israelite, and he killed the Egyptian. And he'd fled out of fear because he thought he was going to be prosecuted and then killed himself for having killed an Egyptian, even though he was a prince in the court of Pharaoh. It's a bit like Ronnie Biggs, the great train robber who hid in Australia and Brazil for 25 years. Or this week, if you're watching news, the former Nissan CEO, uh, Carlos Goshen, who's fled Japan to Lebanon. 
Moses, having murdered an Egyptian, is scared and running for his life, and despite having the best education the known world could buy, being raised as a prince in the royal family of Pharaoh. Here he was, working as a shepherd, looking after not even his own sheep, but the flock that belonged to his father-in-law, Jethro. This is no stepping back from the royal family, if we may use a term from this week's news. This is a full-blown sprint in the opposite direction. This is a prince, scared, running for his life, who flees his own country and runs as far away as he can to get away. And yet, it's significant that he was in the desert and that he was alone. The Hebrew word for desert is midbar. It comes from the Hebrew word to speak. And the reality is that God often spoke and speaks in the desert. He speaks in the wilderness when we're least expecting it. Maybe that's some of our experience this morning. If you were to describe how you feel in relationship to God, you would probably say, I'm in the wilderness. God seems miles away. God is distant. God is remote. God is removed. When I pray, it seems as though it's it's a pointless exercise. I come to church and the songs just bounce off me. People around me are sort of getting into it and whatever, and I'm just going, I'm left completely cold. It seems as though you've forgotten me, God. It seems as though you've abandoned me. It seems as though you are hundreds of miles away, God. That is exactly where Moses was. He hadn't heard from God for decades, if at all. And yet, on what he thought was an ordinary day, an ordinary day like any other day, a day when he was just going about his work, God revealed himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, God tells Israel why they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. It's quite striking that Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness before he then leads a nation for 40 years in the wilderness. And God says this in Deuteronomy 8, it was to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep my commandments. One of the reasons sometimes that God takes us into the wilderness, and if you think it doesn't happen to Christians, it happened to Jesus. Jesus was led by the Spirit, Luke chapter 4, into the wilderness for the temptations. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. One of the reasons that God allows people to go into the wilderness is to test us in order to know what is in our hearts. Not that God needs to know. God knows what's in our hearts. But the reason God allows us or leads us into the wilderness sometimes is to humble us, to test us, in order to reveal what's in our hearts to us so that we discover who we really are. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest, uh, wrote a lot about uh, solitude and contemplative prayer. And in his book, The Genesee Diary, he admits that the first time he went on a silent, uh, solitary retreat, he was absolutely terrified before he went. 
He was scared stiff at what might come out. Not what might come to him, but what might come out of him. Because stripped of everything else, he realized that he was going to discover who he really was. If you're in the wilderness, that may be why God has allowed you to be there. Because what's coming out and what you're discovering is who you really are. What really matters to you. What really motivates to you. And what perhaps needs changing in you as God humbles you and tests you. And Moses also is alone. Something, again, that some of us find actually quite scary. I have to confess, my worst idea of spiritual growth is a silent, solitary retreat. That may say a lot about me, but I will avoid it if I can. We had to do it pre-ordination 20 years ago. I think it was the last one I went on. Hated it for three days to be alone by myself and to be silent. Absolute, just, it's not one of my spiritual pathways, I tell myself. Maybe it's because I'm actually frightened as to what would happen if I allowed that to happen. But Moses is alone. And that often provides an opportunity to, to hear God's voice in a way that may be more difficult if we fill our lives with stuff and people and activities, even though it's good stuff, even though it's good people, and even though it's good activities. Maybe we're filling our life with stuff, with people, activities, in order to prevent us hearing what God wants to say to us. Moses is in Midian, as far away from the center of things as anyone can get. He's 80 years of age. He thinks probably his life is over, the die is cast, and this is how life will be now just until he dies. But then God reveals himself. Because in verses 4 to 6, we see worship that is personal on and deliberate. On this ordinary day, God reveals himself, and Moses comes across this extraordinary sight, a bush, an ordinary bush, literally a thorny shrub that is on fire but is not burnt up. It's on fire but it's not being consumed. And Moses decides to go and investigate. He decides to go and see it. And I think it's significant that when Moses decides to go over to the bush... That is when God speaks and not before. Worship is a deliberate act of the will. It won't just happen. Most of you made a deliberate act of the will this morning to be here. Some of you were told you had to come. But most of us decided that we would be here. Most of us, P's and G's, on time. But we made a deliberate decision to, to get dressed, to have breakfast, hopefully to have a wash or a shower, and to come. Worship is like that. We make a deliberate decision. It's not about how we feel. It's not about whether you feel like it, whether you feel in the mood. Worship is making a deliberate decision. Moses decides to go over 
to the bush that's on fire. And it's when God sees that Moses goes over, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, then God speaks. There's a cause and effect. Moses moves towards the bush and God speaks. And when God speaks, it's personal. It's personal. When God speaks, he doesn't say, Oi, or you, whatever your name is. He calls him by name twice, Moses. Moses. It's personal. And worship should be personal. It's not private. Worship is personal. Personal to who we are, but personal because it is corporate, but also individual, as well as a deliberate choice and decision. And Moses responds. When he hears God speak, Moses responds. Worship should always evoke, worship should always elicit a response. And Moses says, here I am. In essence, what Moses is saying is, it's me, I'm here. And immediately, God has to begin to establish with Moses the basis of this ongoing relationship, and it will be different. Because worship restores perspective, and worship restores reality. See, our minds are filled with many things during the week. Our society, our culture tells us lots of things about ourselves, about other people, about what's important, about what is unimportant, about even who God is. Worship restores perspective and reality. It reminds us who God is. It reminds us what God has done. We're about to do that in the act of communion. When we come together to worship, we're reminding each other who God is and what God has done and what God has said. Most sin occurs because we choose to forget who God is. Or we choose to forget what God has said. Worship reminds each other who God is and what he's done and what he's said. And the first thing that God does with Moses is establish the basis of this relationship. Verse 5, Moses, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Moses pops up with a, it's me, I'm here, hiya. And God says, whoa, 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 tiger. That's a paraphrase of the ancient Hebrew. <laughs> this is holy ground. And I think that's a word for many of us in today's church. Because if we're honest, we can saunter into God's presence. It's amazing that because of Jesus, we have the freedom to come into a building like this and to worship God the Father face to face. In this nation, in this culture, we've got the freedom legally to do that. Something that some of our brothers and sisters around the world, they have not got that luxury. And sometimes, often in the contemporary church in the West, in Britain, in 21st century Scotland, we can come into God's presence in buildings like this and gatherings like this and go, Hi, it's me. And maybe one of the things that God wants to say to us over and through this series is 
take off your shoes because actually where you are is holy ground. You need to get a fresh perspective on who I am, God says. You need to take me a bit more seriously and coming into my presence consciously a bit more seriously. Moses needs to realize who God is, who he's dealing with, and on whose terms. And true worship should always do that. And God reminds Moses who he is. He says, I am the God of your fathers, brackets, you never knew your father, Moses. But I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And on one level, that can can seem quite intimidating and, and can seem a sort of bold statement. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, it can be taken that way. I am the God of history. I am the God of amazing faithfulness. I am the God of covenant. I am the God of promises. But on another level, it's also, I am the God of three failures. I'm the God of two serial liars. I'm the God of two serial cheats, Abraham and Jacob. And I'm the God of somebody who was offered against his will as a sacrifice. I'm the God of failures, Moses. I'm the God of liars, Moses. I'm the God of people who think they're not good enough, Moses. I'm the God of people who screw it up time after time after time after time. I'm that God. And then in verses 7 to 10, God reveals the rest of his character. Because he's heard the cries of his people. He's a God of compassion and mercy, empathy and love, a God who suffers along with his people, and a God who acts. And a God who involves people in his work. And God always has and always will until the end of history. Moses receives a call from God. And true, effective worship should always give us that sense of being commissioned. At the end of the nine o'clock service, we, the last liturgical words that we say, we don't often say them at 11 o'clock and 7 o'clock in the same way, even in the communion service. But we say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the congregation replies, in the name of Christ, amen. The last words that we say are not, go and have some coffee. The last words that we say from the front are, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And that's what worship should do. It should recommission us and send us out. That is what happened to Moses, and that is what should happen to us. So that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks, looking at worship, looking at encounter, looking at how we can encourage each other, and at times encourage ourselves to make that deliberate decision to remember who God is, and in the light of who God is, to live our lives differently.